0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we're discussing the role of the radiologist as part of the multidisciplinary lung cancer team. Radiologists play central roles in the detection of lung cancer, in assessing response to therapy, relapse of disease, but increasingly interventional radiologists are involved with both tissue sampling and lung cancer treatment. I am joined by two accomplished thoracic radiologists today to discuss the evolving role of the radiologist in lung cancer care. Our first guest is Dr. Carol Ridge, Dr. Ridge is a consultant radiologist at Royal Brompton Hospital and a senior clinical research fellow at Imperial College London. Her research was awarded the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland medal in 2018. Carol, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Hello.
0: I'm also joined by Dr. Florian Fintelman, associate professor at Harvard Medical School and a thoracic radiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. He also leads the Thoracic Imaging Percutaneous Thermal Ablation Program at MGH, Florian, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. Let's start by explaining to our listeners what type of training is involved in radiology. We have some listeners at various stages of training, some with interest in various fields of medicine. A, a radiologist, first of all, is very different from a radiation oncologist. I see those mixed up at times. If we think about diagnostic radiology or entry into the field, Carol, what kind of training is involved for that after medical school?
1: Um, well, I'm a um, both a diagnostic and interventional radiologist, and I've trained in Ireland um, and the U.S., and now I'm working in the U.K., so I'm trying to um, be as uh, generic as possible in describing this, so there will be variations between countries, but the current approach is that there is a four- or five-year period of residency training that prospective um, medical graduates would apply two, um, where they get a broad grounding in all aspects of diagnostic radiology from head to toe, with a focus placed later on in their training on a particular aspect of diagnostic radiology or interventional radiology, if they choose. The trainee can then, at that point, sit their board examinations and go into practice as an attending radiologist. Um, and typically, if they do have a desire to sub-specialise as an attending, um, a year at least of fellowship training may be undertaken.
0: That would be uh, across the different modalities or different disease types or or both?
1: Um, Yes. So in fellowship training, usually you're focusing on one um, system, Uh, for example, thoracic imaging or cardiac imaging. And in interventional radiology, it's slightly different where you might elect to become an interventional radiologist early on in your training and then do approximately three years of focused IR training.
0: Well, Florian, maybe you can tell our listeners what an interventional radiologist is and you know what additional training is needed now for interventional radiology or IR.
2: Sure. So an interventional radiologist, as compared to a diagnostic radiologist, is focused on intervening, meaning they are the physicians who perform image-guided procedures with the goal to either diagnose or treat a whole variety of illnesses. Or conditions. For example, an interventional radiologist would work with needles, wires, catheters to either diagnose conditions, for example, a narrowing of the bile duct by injecting some contrast. That same interventional radiologist could also treat a narrowing of the bile duct by putting a stent to expand it, make that uh, narrow duct more wide. When you think about lung cancer, which is the focus of this podcast, obviously, the interventional radiologist might perform a needle biopsy. So using a needle and image guidance through a small incision um, in the skin to get a piece of tissue from a suspicious nodule in the lung. And that same interventional radiologist could, if the circumstances are appropriate, later even treat that lung cancer. But I think that's a more, that requires a more nuanced discussion. With regards to what the training is, the requirements in the United States did change probably in the last five to 10 years, I forget exactly when, but now interventional radiology is recognized as its own separate specialty, meaning that there's a distinct residency whereby radiology residents have to choose after medical school, do I want to be a diagnostic radiologist or an interventional radiologist? And the program directors have put together a curriculum with a lot of clinical rotations, surgical rotations, intensive care rotations to really make the interventional radiologist a more clinical um give them more clinical training because the more we understand about interventional radiology even though it's quote just needles wires and catheters the spectrum of conditions and referring providers we interact with is extensive and to really insert the tools that we have and leverage them to the patient's advantage it's really really important to be familiar with the care pathways and that's why more clinical training uh, was was desired here in the U.S. Hmm. for interventional radiologists. Yeah,
0: it's, I didn't realize that. Um, well, let's let's talk now about the the diagnostic component, and our focus is on lung cancer today. Early stage lung cancer is often detected incidentally on a CT scan, but an increasing number are diagnosed after a screening CT scan. A low dose CT for lung cancer screening has been shown to decrease lung cancer mortality. And we now know there are two large studies that demonstrated a a clear benefit. Florian, can you briefly summarize the the findings of the NLST?
2: So the NLST, or the National Lung Screening Trial, was a trial conducted um, 30-some medical centers here in the United States. And the NLST, when it was first reported in 2011, showed that between patients who were randomized to either a chest radiograph Or a low-dose chest CT for three rounds of annual screening, there was a lung cancer-specific mortality benefit, meaning that the chance of dying from lung cancer was about 20 percent lower in the arm of patients that were screened with low-dose chest CT. Not only that, the patients who underwent screening with low-dose chest CT also had a overall survival benefit, meaning from causes other than lung cancer, um, they survived longer. Yeah, huge, hugely important
0: data coming from NLST. The other large screening trial we're familiar with was the NELSON trial. Uh, Carol, can you tell us how the NELSON trial was different from NLST?
1: The NELSON trial is a, a European trial, also known as the Dutch-Belgian Randomized Lung Cancer Screening Trial. Um, and it's a a newer study, um, they published their final results in 2020, so nine years after NLST. And it aimed at assessing the 10 year survival benefit of low dose CT in high risk individuals compared to no intervention at all. So people in the control group had no chest x ray, unlike in NLST. Um, it analyzed smokers or recent quitters with a lower minimum threshold for cigarette exposure than the NLST trial. And they also measured outcome in a slightly different way in that they measured volume of the nodule rather than overall axial size of the nodule. So it was millimeters cubed and not centimeters or millimeters. And they measured the growth rate between scans, which is known as the volume doubling time. So if a patient had a volume doubling time that was short um, i.e less than 400 days they would go on uh, to have um, referral for suspected lung carcinoma and the key findings um, were that um, there were about two percent positive tests in the first round of screening and that patients who were screened with ct compared to no screening whatsoever were less likely to die from lung cancer within 10 years so that what, what was that benefit So, screened patients had a 2.5 per thousand people per year rate of death from lung cancer compared to 3.3 in the screened group. Or put another way, if you have a CT, you are 0.76 times less likely to die from cancer than if you do not. Um, There was a greater benefit seen in women versus men, but the Nelson trial had a large uh, group of males versus females. So the data derived from that female group um, it probably needs to be repeated in a larger group of people. And the reason there were more men is because smoking trends in Belgium and the Netherlands were very different, um, where women less often smoked and women who did smoke, smoked less than men.
0: You know, these are our two hugely important studies, and they've both shown a clear benefit in terms of lung cancer survival. We know the most lethal cancer out there. But- As of now, only a small fraction of eligible patients are receiving these low-dose screening CT scans. Florian, why why is that?
2: If I had the answer exactly to why that is, I think I would be getting a medal because one of the big efforts here in the United States where we've now had lung cancer screening as a nationally approved benefit since 2015, so seven years now, uh, one of the mysteries is that, as you said, we think the uptake is much less than it could be. The estimated number of patients that could be eligible for low-dose chest CT for lung cancer screening, which is an annual test that saves lives, is close to 7 million. And that was based on the, these are numbers I I remember from um, when lung cancer screening was first approved. The eligibility criteria have since been loosened. So now you need to be 50 years or older and have a pack year smoking history of 20 years or more. Um, so different from the initial thresholds and more and more loose. So actually potentially more patients could even be eligible or are likely eligible at this point. Now, when we think about how many patients actually get screening, we think um, based on some analysis of uh, surveys where they, you know, folks call different homes across the country and get a representative sample, we believe that the current uptake or or percentage of patients or participants who are eligible in screening and actually get screening is close to, in the best case scenario, I would think 20%. I think 16% was a more recent number and all those surveys trail by a couple of years at least. So I'm thinking 20% is something that, that we could think is the best case scenario based on the data that we have. And the you know that that leaves eighty percent who are not getting it, and the the reason is probably multiple. There are many many facets to that. One could be information. You know, does everyone who's potentially eligible um, it, are they aware that they could get screening if they wanted to? Um, number two are some some financial barriers. Uh, technically, because it's been receiving a USPSDF grade B or higher recommendation, there should not be a copay. However, how that is handled at the level of the different states um, is another question. Third, the you know access to to screening sites where patients can undergo that low dose chest CT and get a good quality interpretation is probably sufficient. But I am speaking from the perspective of someone who's in the East Coast with a high density of providers. It's you know i it's we know it's different in other parts of the country um so i think access is a big issue as well we also think that there is and there's data to support this that there's probably some some self-censoring and and some fear of stigmatization um and sort of a a a desire from patients to not engage with that question because of you know projected images of maybe some patients may think that lung cancer could be their fault and that's why they're not supposed to seek care and, and they may be embarrassed. And if if anyone's listening who who maybe has that idea, I would make a personal appeal to them. F- forget all that. You know, it's it, it's your health. The, the CT itself doesn't require contrast. There's no needle stick. It takes about three minutes to do. Uh, the actual imaging fraction is just a few seconds, but you know, the, the motion of walking into the room, lying down at a table, Minimal change. Get the CT quickly. You're out in ten to fifteen minutes. So it's a really, really quick exam that has been shown to save lives in in multiple settings. But um, Stephen, those would be the the main the main uh, points that that come to my mind when we think about why the uptake of this relatively new, the most recent screening test that we offer here in the United States, is not as high as we wish it would be.
0: Yeah, very insightful. And the stigma is something we don't talk about quite enough. Carol, do you find that the barriers are are the same in the UK?
1: So in the UK, we have a slightly different program. We don't have a completely um, across-the-board national screening program yet. Um, We have a targeted lung health check program where over 30 centers across the country are offering screening uh, for a possible CT. Patients are invited through their primary care physician based on tobacco exposure. So if they've ever smoked before, they get a letter inviting them to come um, for a assessment by a nurse. Um, And the uptake for that is 35 percent of um, total eligible patients. And patients then complete a questionnaire with a nurse. And then this data is entered into a risk modeler. And if they have between a 1% and 2% risk of developing cancer in the next five to six years, depending on the risk model that's used, they then go on for low-dose CT. There are still some barriers in the UK, largely to do with, again, the fear of a diagnosis um, and socioeconomic factors, um, probably education um, about their um, ability to access care that might be curative.
0: I love that idea of removing <laughs> those barriers and taking patients, um, taking the machines to the patients. You know, looking ahead as we get better at implementing screening, I think we just have to be cognizant of the resources that are needed because we need, you know, not just the patients to to sort of agree to come in for screening. We need the CT scanners themselves. We need radiologists such as yourselves to to be able to to read them and disseminate those results. But I'm glad we're making some progress and hopefully more to come. I want to talk about a couple other questions I get a lot um, that, that could be directed to radiologists. We think of CT scans as something so critical to the detection of lung cancer, but also just to manage lung cancer, to assess response, to monitor for surveillance. We do lots of CT scans. And so a common question I get is about the radiation involved in a CT scan and the potential
2: for harm. Florian, how would you address that question? It's an excellent question, and it harks back to the the concept that as physicians, we should not do harm. So when someone asks me about the risk of ionizing radiation, that's what we're talking about here when we consider CT and even chest radiographs, right? Or radiographs, the, the concept that comes to mind is if I was not worried as a medical provider, a licensed physician, an expert in the field of diagnosis about a certain condition, I would not advise you to get a test that has some side effects. That's a principle. Now, let's say someone is at risk for lung cancer. We talked about the NLST where they use 30 or more pack years, you know, certain age criteria, current smokers. We know that the risk of having lung cancer is higher in that subgroup. So if someone from that subset of the population comes up to me and says, hey, should I get a CT even though there's ionizing radiation involved? I would say absolutely yes. There are two studies that show that you stand to benefit. But in my mind, I'm always doing the calculation of there is a small risk. And that is exactly why I don't, as Carol said, you know, put the CT scanner up next to the grocery store and invite everyone to take a picture. People say take a picture, but we're talking about getting a CT scan. So that's exactly the reason why there are certain criteria to have an a priori meaning before you undergo the test, risk assessment to make the calculation whether or not someone stands to benefit from the slight risk they're exposed. Now, if you want to talk actual numbers in millisievert, how much, what is the risk of a low-dose chest CT in particular for lung cancer screening, it's about the background radiation you get in in the course of a year, ballpark. Um, the scanners are getting better and better, you know, low, the radiation dose is dropping, um, for both regular diagnostic CTs that someone might get as part of their lung cancer care if they're on treatment, you mentioned uh, disease response assessment, you mentioned, um, we know we talked about image guided procedures, that's one bucket, but the low dose chest CT for screening is about ballpark, um, the background radiation and kind of depends on where you live and we can get into the nitty gritty, but it's overall the background radiation that you're exposed to anyways, just by living for a year. That's a great way to put it.
0: Um, The the CT scans now have such great resolution. We we see so many things now. And, you know, as we mentioned at the top, a lot of lung cancer is diagnosed sort of incidentally. Um, When we do a CT scan for a different reason, we see lots of different things. You know, a lot of the questions I get have to do with other lung nodules detected on CT scans. And a lot of times they end up being incidental findings. And in the screening studies we've talked about, I know a lot of nodules were found that ended up not being cancer. Carol, how common are these benign lung nodules? And how do you tell the difference between a benign nodule from something concerning?
1: Well, I suppose the important thing to differentiate is you're talking about two different populations. So if a patient who does not have high risk of lung cancer has a CT for a different reason and they have um, their scan and they're then told, well, you have a lung nodule. Um, The high likelihood there is that this is going to be actually a benign nodule. In fact, I did look at this particular kind of patient um, during my fellowship um, in Beth Israel Deaconess, and we analyzed a group of patients over a two-year period who had incidentally detected lung nodules. And we found that just under 99%, so 98.5% of those nodules that were picked up were indeed benign. Um, And the small handful of malignant nodules um, that we picked up were um, either representing a secondary from another cancer or representing a tiny uh, early lung cancer that was picked up by accident, effectively. There are ways of us telling uh, which nodules are benign and malignant based on how they look on CT scans. Um, So many of the nodules that we see on CT scans may have a typical appearance that would suggest it's benign. For example, if you have a nodule that is triangular or pyramidal like a diamond, um, or if you have a nodule that is close to the fissure in between lobes of the lungs, then those are features which very commonly point towards it being a benign interpulmonary lymph node, which we all have. And then there are other features that we look for to try and diagnose malignancy. And you may hear descriptions such as speculation. So if a lung nodule has spiky edges rather than smooth edges, it is more likely to be malignant than benign. So we use those specific CT features to try and decide whether a nodule needs to be assessed further on CT.
0: You stated so simply, Carol, I have such admiration. It's so challenging to do. And I think having an expert thoracic radiologist such as yourself, Dr. Florian, um, it is so critical to, to a, a well running thoracic department. You know, we know these scans can be really challenging to interpret sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. from my standpoint as, as a clinician, I think the most difficult scenario for me is after radiation therapy. You know, a lot of times there are these significant radiographic abnormalities that persist and, they can mimic a lot of other conditions. For example, you know, we use dervalimab a PD1, a PD one a PD-L1 inhibitor after chemo radiation. You know, and you know, can we distinguish between radiation changes, between radiation fibrosis, radiation pneumonitis, and something immune-mediated? Any, any tips there, Florian?
2: So you're asking me to dive deep into the imaging findings. So I hope this is not going to be boring to to uh, some of the less imaging uh, focused uh, part of your listeners, but the bottom line is, a immune mediated pneumonitis can present in many different ways. The challenge with thoracic imaging is that you need the change over time. I often t- tell our trainees, if you if you're not aware of the notion of interpreting change over time, just as much as the simple observation of what's right in front of you you don't understand thoracic imaging. Let me give you an example. If someone is talking about, oh, this is a, let's say a a cancer in the liver. There are certain features on certain imaging tests that make this a cancer of the liver and nothing else. With lung, a pneumonia in the lung can look, an infection in the lung effectively, can look the same as a lung cancer, which in 2022 to me is mind boggling, you know? Um, And that's on on CT, but even PET doesn't help you that way. But to go back to your question, an immune-mediated pneumonitis would basically be in some timely correlation with the onset of checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So you're talking about DERVA. Let's say you have a lung that was radiated in the right upper lobe. And then suddenly after three to six months on DERVA, you see that there are some ground glass opacities at the lung bases, bilateral, right? Not just on the side that was radiated, but bilateral. And you see that over multiple time points, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three time points, the ground glass continues to increase. It's still subtle. And then as a radiologist, that would prompt the question to the referring provider, to you as the oncologist, maybe does the patient endorse some cough, and the cough itself would not necessarily prompt the oncologist or the, the clinical care team to raise the question of checkpoint inhibitor pneumonitis because people cough for many different reasons. But once you have the ground glass opacities that are bilateral, that progress over time, that don't just come and go, they start in a subtle way and then become more obvious over three to six months, then you know, okay, you could be dealing here with a checkpoint inhibitor pneumonitis. And when I say ground glass opacity, it's just, just one way this uh, very insidious phenomenon can, can manifest. You can also see it as interstitial abnormalities. You can see it as more consolidative opacities that resemble a, a cryptogenic organizing pneumonia or COP, as we say. Um, and I think between those three, you have the most common presentations. There's also very, you know, uh, very quickly, rapidly progressing uh, form of, of this disease. But I think that the top three manifestations that I described and that progress over time and are associated on prompt with some clinical symptoms, that's probably the most typical picture I see. You know, I think that these answers just show that the expertise that
0: really is needed, that it's not, uh, so automatic that it really does require a lot of skill and a lot of experience. And so I thank you both for, for your work there. Let's move on to to the interventional portion. You know, the radiologist we know plays a role in establishing the diagnosis often through a needle biopsy. And in some cases, interventional radiologists can offer treatment in the form of percutaneous ablations, uh, percutaneous thermal ablation for example. Carol, can you maybe explain to us what radiofrequency ablation is and how it can help some patients?
1: Radiofrequency ablation, um or sometimes called RFA, introduces a electric current into the target tissue, for example, lung tumors in the practice of myself and Dr. Fintelman. And this uh, radio frequency energy heats up the target tissue by ionic agitation. Um, the cells are then raised through this agitation, the temperature of these cells is raised to above 60 degrees, and this is a a lethal temperature for human cells. Um, It causes protein denaturation and cell death. And it's very much the established and most documented ablation technique. It was in fact first described as a cancer treatment in the 1980s. It's suitable uh, for use in several organs, um, liver, lung, Um, other solid abdominal organs, and even bone. It's particularly good in solid organs as these tissues have water within them, which conduct that electrical current. Um, It can, however, cause an injury because it is a heating treatment. So care has to be taken not to burn near a crucial structure, like, for example, the ureter, which drains urine out of the kidney. I did mention that radiofrequency is um, very good uh, within hydrated tissues. That One of the challenges we have within the lung is that radiofrequency ablation does not pass terribly well through dry desiccated tissue. Um, so we have migrated to other technologies in, in recent years.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that it had been around for so long. Um, let's talk about some of those other techniques. Florian, I've heard cryoablation, I've heard microwave ablation. How are these different?
2: So cryoablation and microwave ablation are also percutaneous and sometimes now even endobronchial, transbronchial. But let's talk about the percutaneous um, thermal ablation modalities. When I talk to patients that come see me, I differentiate between heat and cold. And what Carol just explained, radiofrequency ablation is a heat-based modality that we have a lot of experience with. Microwave ablation is also a heat-based modality modality that we have a little bit less experience with but also a solid amount of experience Um, all of those work with us through a small incision in the skin about a tenth of an inch wide so two to three millimeters wide and then a needle about as thick as the core of a ballpoint pen is advanced into the lung wherever you're treating and then the energy is delivered once the needle is in appropriate position uh, cryoablation is the cold modality. So in cryoablation, you don't use electromagnetic waves. But what happens is you advance one or more of these needles through these small incisions I described. And when by imaging with a CT scanner, you know they're in, in appropriate um, relation to the, the, the tumor that you're treating. And by that, I mean the active part of each needle. There's a part where the, there is energy emitted. Uh, in the case of cryoblation, that is simply cold. Temperatures as low as minus 220 degrees Fahrenheit, which corresponds for our European listeners to minus 140 degrees Celsius. Then you, you know, push the button and the energy is released in a certain way, depending on if you're using heat or cold. There's some intricacies to the treatment protocol itself. But what does it all mean? It means that for tumors that are in a location where surgical resection would require sacrificing a lot of lung, you can save a lot of healthy lung. So it's parenchymal sparing, and that's what's what's unique about thermal ablation compared to other treatment modalities.
0: Hmm. A a similar advantage, I think, to stereotactic radiation as well, um, where we have different tools that can maybe help spare some lung parenchyma, and there are many cases where that's critical. You know, Carol, in your opinion, when is thermal ablation the proper treatment strategy?
1: Well, international guidance is that patients who are not suitable surgical candidates in the context of lung cancer uh, should be referred for a local therapy, such as percutaneous ablation or irradiation. In my experience, there are some patients who have a personal preference to have a one stage treatment, and then other patients who simply cannot have radiation because they've previously been irradiated in that area, or they have underlying pulmonary fibrosis, or they have scarring of the lungs, which is benign, but can progress as a result of radiation therapy. Moving on to a different kind of patient in terms of metastatic disease, which which we do also treat with ablation. Um, Some patients will come to us seeking ablation as a lung sparing technique, um, as Dr. Fintelman referred to. Um, particularly in patients who have had prior metastasectomies surgically, uh, and they may desire a quicker recovery than they may have had before with surgery.
0: Hmm. Carol, this is maybe a a little bit of a a tricky question, but are there situations where you might pursue some sort of local ablative therapy without a biopsy beforehand?
1: Um, My preference is to have a biopsy diagnosis before treating any lung cancers. Um, because I found in the past that sometimes you might be surprised by your biopsy diagnosis. Um, you, I have on occasions biopsied patients who I thought would be then going on for ablation and it had turned out to be fungal disease in the setting of a interstitial lung disease. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to make sure that this is in fact malignancy. Um, the other advantage is that, um, if the patient has perhaps a molecular target for treatment at a later point, it would be nice to get a biopsy specimen just in case they do have a local recurrence. The patients who I don't biopsy are patients who have metastatic disease that we're treating, so oligometastatic disease, where they have developed new nodules, and it's radiologically and clinically evident um, that this is metastatic disease, and we don't
2: need to biopsy them.
0: Florian, uh, do you agree Any any other pitfalls of not performing a lung biopsy before ablation?
2: I think the you know infection, because it can look so similar on FDG PET, um, is a pitfall. The other one is observation. So most of the patients I treat with thermal ablation have metastases to the lungs or a cancer outside the lung that then spreads to the lung. The And in those cases, what you want, you would want to observe them for several months just to make sure that the disease doesn't just go wild and... Suddenly they have multiplication of metastases and which would then imply that what you're doing for them with a local ablative um, treatment, such as surgery or resection or thermal ablation is in vain. And they would be better served by a systemic therapy option like chemo. Mm. Now, one, one addition I wanted to make to what Carol just said is that multifocal primary lung cancer. So the patients who develop multiple lung cancers in the course of their lives, that is the most common lung cancer that I treat with thermal ablation. The second most common scenario would be someone who received radiation, but then recurs. And I think the second scenario is something to emphasize in this forum, because I've been to conferences and have asked uh, radiation oncologists, what do you do when the lung cancer recurs after radiation? And I've seen people throw up their hands on stage and say, well, you know, they weren't a surgical candidate anyways, and I can't help them a second time around, risk of complication goes up. But that's where thermal ablation really, really is very important. Because if they're not a surgical candidate, they failed radiation. Unless the tumor is out of bounds size-wise, I think thermal ablation has a key role to play.
0: It's a good point. And I think we don't talk about the options enough, maybe in part because are these available everywhere? I imagine it takes some expertise and there's, I would imagine, a very steep learning curve. So, you know, Carol, um, you know, are are there enough radiologists that are skilled at doing these procedures?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, if your tumor board doesn't have an interventional radiologist sitting in on it, then you're less likely probably to be aware of it as an option. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why it's really important for Um, interventional radiologists to get involved in lung cancer tumour boards there is certainly a shortage of people who are um, comfortable performing thermal ablation in the lung I think that's around the world there is Um, so you know it's being used largely in specialist centres now like in uh, MGH and uh, in the Royal Brompton where I work
0: well, I'm sure that the the patients at those illustrious institutions are, are are very grateful for your expertise. And you know, this has been great. We we haven't featured radiologists enough on the podcast, but we know they're an essential part of our multidisciplinary team. You know, I'd love to to talk a, a bit more about things, but I know that we are at time. So I, I want to thank both of our esteemed guests for joining us today for all of their insights and of course all that they're doing for our patients and for the field. Florian, thank you so much for for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Carol, thank you for joining us. I love the insightful discussions
1: here. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it too.
0: And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.